it's nice to be with people who know how to sing. God is good as he brings people together with their voices, their hearts, their souls, unites them in songs like the one we've just sung, and uh, put God where he belongs in life on a pedestal um, above, even though he's within, to, to say, God, you are great and wonderful and marvelous. So it's good to be with people who sing that. We're going to be studying and thinking and learning and just spending some time in, the, in a very familiar story this morning, everyone. It's the story of the fall, Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Um, we'll get there in about maybe five to ten minutes or so, but I encourage you to look the, the text up so you've got it ready as we kind of dive in in just a little bit. Uh, again, my name is David Denhan. I, um, I serve an agency of our denomination called Pastor Church Resources. And we come alongside pastors and churches as they're going through all kinds of stuff, transition and change and conflict and challenge, try to help them to have good conversations, try to help them to reconcile, try to help them to sort their way through to clarity when they feel nothing but chaos. And uh, it is a wonderful place to be. I get a front row seat to people at their best and people at their worst. <laughs> and it's an amazing place. It's an amazing, amazing place. I uh, used to be a pastor, I, I still am a pastor, technically speaking, but I served Fairway Christian Reformed Church in Jenison. Before that, I was in Minnesota for a few years. And uh, I've got three kids, one wife, we're all out of the house, we're empty nesting, and life is good. <laughs> we remember the days when ours were just about the size of all you guys. And uh, remember that with fondness, and are grateful that that's also changed and we're doing something different with our lives now. Uh, I'd like to begin this morning by telling you a story, if that's all right with you. It's a story told by, actually, I got from a friend of mine. Uh, we're going to call her Lisa. And it's a story about Lisa's uncle, who we'll call Jim. Now, Uncle Jim was Lisa's favorite relative of her parents' age. You know how you do that? You've got a favorite relative, favorite uncle, favorite aunt, maybe. Well, Jim was that for Lisa. Jim was... Lisa's favorite, uh, favorite relative. They lived in different towns, different states, in fact, but whenever Uncle Jim would come over to stay for a, a few days, a long weekend or whatever, it was just a party. Uh, Uncle Jim brought uh, all kinds of gifts for Lisa and her siblings. Uncle Jim brought Lisa out on errands when he needed to go to the grocery store for Lisa's mom or whatever, get some gas in the car. Lisa would come with, and it was fun. Um, Uncle Jim was the kind of person that uh, just knew how to be with kids in ways that blessed them and helped them and made it safe for them to be with him. When Lisa grew older, she chose to go to a college uh, in the same city where Uncle Jim happened to live. Not because Uncle Jim was there, but because they offered the right program. Tuition was just the right kind of level. You know how that goes, all that conversation. And so she went to the, uh, to the city where Uncle Jim lived, and they continued their relationship, a wonderful relationship. And when Lisa graduated from college, Uncle Jim was there with Lisa's parents. When, when Lisa got married later on, Uncle Jim was there with Lisa's parents. When Lisa's children were born, Uncle Jim was there. And when, Uncle, uh, when Lisa and her husband needed a night out, Uncle Jim was there. 
fast forward a little while, and um, maybe something that you should know about Uncle Jim is that he never got married, never had a wife, had a few girlfriends along the way, but just never got married. And so when Uncle Jim got older, Lisa became like his, his daughter in the sense that she would get groceries for him if, uh, if things needed to be done, um, like at the post office or at the hardware store, things that needed to get picked up, Lisa would do that for Uncle Jim. She never, for some reason, never got into the house. Uncle Jim never welcomed her into the house for some weird reason. But anyway, um, after a while, Lisa began a note with sadness that Uncle Jim was declining in health. And wasn't quite sure how to bring it up with Uncle Jim, but just noticed that with her husband and with her parents, that Uncle Jim just didn't seem to be the same guy, not the same kind of fun personality, same kind of strong personality that he always had been. And then um, over this, this past spring, actually, began to notice that when she dropped groceries off, Uncle Jim didn't come to the porch to pick them up. It was like, just drop them off, Lisa, and I'll, I'll pick them up later, was the text. Lisa got worried. Uh, she really got worried when one weekend she tried to call Uncle Jim and he wouldn't pick up. Tried to text Uncle Jim. No text back. She said to her husband, I'm just going to drive over there. Just probably nothing wrong, but I'm just going to drive over there and, s- and see if there's something that I can do. Maybe the phone battery went out and he doesn't quite know how to get, get it plugged in or whatever. She went over to the house, knocked on the door, no answer. Knocked on all the windows of the house, and again, no answer. She went around the house three or four times, just knocking on various windows, hoping to get him out of whatever he was in, sleeping perhaps, or I mean, who knows what? And no answer. She finally called the, the police to say, could you come over and just do a safety check at the house here? And they came, broke into the house, and told Lisa to stay in her car. They found Uncle Jim slumped over on the floor, barely conscious, barely breathing, bleeding from his extremities, from his feet, and um, called the ambulance, rushed him to the hospital, where they found that he'd been suffering from what's called peripheral artery disease and probably had been suffering from this for years. Didn't tell anybody, of course, but probably this had been his condition. So all the flesh at the extremities weren't getting the oxygen that they needed to get. And over time, his feet just became so decayed, which explained the awful smell in the house when the police went in. They brought him to hospice after a couple of weeks. And three months later, he died. His body just wasn't able to recover from all the infections that had set in, from the organ damage that had taken place. He simply slipped away one night. The mystery for Lisa and for her family, for her husband and her parents, the mystery for Lisa is why did he not call me before this? Why hadn't he explained his health conditions and his health challenges? Why hadn't he said a blessed thing 
to her or to anybody else about what he was experiencing. But it turns out that wasn't even the biggest mystery. The biggest mystery was something that they began to dig into as Uncle Jim first had gone to the hospital on that awful day. And when Lisa and her husband saw him at the hospital and then made sure he was okay, Lisa went back to the house just to see if there were any like insurance papers or documents that might help the doctors and nurses figure out how to pay for all the care and all this stuff. And It was the first time she'd been in the house for maybe 15 years. And the place looked like it hadn't been cleaned once in all that time. Inch-thick dust all over the place. Bathroom fixtures that had rusted shut. Light fixtures that had not been on for who knows how long. They certainly didn't work now any longer. And she began to, I mean, she began to kind of think through what a, a shock this all is, but then had to kind of focus again. I've got to find some documents. Maybe there's some Medicare uh, documents here. Maybe there's some whatever. Began to sort through papers that she would find in the places you'd expect, the, the desk, um, basement storage room, and began to uncover these documents that, not, that didn't exactly explain his financial condition, but she began to find troves of letters from married women who had written to Uncle Jim decades ago. And it was obvious that the relationship was more than a relationship of just friends. These were married women. She began to uncover documents from former employers who had, over a string of employment stays, let go of Uncle Jim because he performed so poorly at work. He wouldn't show up on time, was abusive to his coworkers, and so on. At some point, she, she uncovered papers from the church that Uncle Jim had belonged to and from which he had been uh, excommunicated because of abusive behavior towards all the people that he had worked with in various committees and in worship and so on. And you might well imagine how difficult a day it was for Lisa to go through all of this stuff and uncover all of these mysteries about the one that she thought she had known so well for all of her life. And she wondered to herself, how is it that Uncle Jim, this, this man that I've known all my life as a warm and inviting personality, as somebody who just modeled love to me and poured love upon me and my family. How is it that this is the same guy who couldn't hold down a job, who couldn't clean his house, who betrayed a whole bunch of relationships and violated marriages, and then was thrown out of his church? How can this be the same person? Maybe you're wondering that very same question as I'm rolling this story out with you this morning. Maybe you're wondering, yeah, what is it with this guy? Like he's a beautiful personality on one hand, and he just seems like kind of a, a thug on the other. And, uh, and maybe you've wondered this kind of thing about other people in your lives. 
people about whom you know wonderful things and about whom you know dark things. And maybe if you're able to be really spiritually honest with yourself, you've wondered this about yourself. How is it possible that I can be so filled with beauty and can say such wonderful things to others and be so supportive? And yet if people peeked into my life and lifted the hood on the engine of who I am, they would see all kinds of darkness. How is it possible that all of this stuff can live within the same human being? Well, let's bring that wonder to the text, to Genesis 3. Let's see what it says. This story in, the, in Scripture here in Genesis 3, of course, comes after the story of anybody? Creation, yep. It's the story of creation um, in which we learn that God created all things. And, uh, and lo, it was very good. Code language for perfect. It was, in fact, perfect. And then we get this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will surely die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And that's as far as we read, at least for now. So here we have a mystery. How can good and beauty exist, or beauty and awfulness exist in the same person? And here we have this text from Genesis chapter 3, in which the narrator brings us into a perfect garden, the Garden of Eden, created by God. Chapters 1 and 2 is all about God's beautiful creation. Not only, nothing remotely bad has yet happened in creation as we enter the text there at chapter 3, not yet anyway. But then the narrator introduces us to Satan, the serpent, representation of evil the tempter who hates God and who hates everything God loves. It's his full-time job to hate everything God loves. And the narrator shows us Satan talking to Eve, the first woman. Did God really say that you should not eat from any tree in the garden? 
And right away you know Satan is twisting God's words. He's making God sound like more of a tyrant than anything that God really is. So as he twists God's words just a bit, he leads Eve to question the goodness of God. Did God is God really all about my flourishing? Is God really honest with me and with Adam? Does he really want what's best for us? Does he really care that much about us? And, and, and isn't he trying just to keep us from having the same kind of power that he has? And oh boy, maybe that's something that makes me rethink how I should relate to God. And rethink how I should relate to anything God says. Following the serpent's leading and deciding to doubt God rather than trust God is a basic human mistake. Eve breaks the only thou shalt not that God has spoken thus far, takes a bite of the forbidden fruit, and then she offers it to her husband, Adam, who irresponsibly hasn't said a word. He takes the fruit that Eve gives him, that God has forbidden him to eat, and he bites into the fruit himself. And sin enters every nook and cranny of God's creation on the strength of that rebellion. Every nook and cranny becomes a place of muted light and increasing darkness. Every soul that is born thereafter will be born and will inherit this reality, the reality of sin. Human rebellion enters God's perfect world, and, one, and while there's much that's hard to understand about this text, one thing is clear, that everything has changed. Nothing will be innocent ever again. Everything is now twisted away from what God wanted to be. And one of the tragedies here, everybody, one of the tragedies here is that the, the closer any element of creation is to God, the farther it falls. Remember what God says later in the text? If you've read this text before, I'm sure a lot of you have. He talks about thorns, right? Thorns will grow up and make gardening difficult. In other words, the soil is twisted against what God had originally planned for it. But it's not twisted in a way that um, is so full of tragedy. I mean, it's a nuisance for Adam. That's how it's presented in the text. It's a nuisance for Adam. Work is going to be a lot harder. But then you think about what happens a little bit later in the text with Cain and Abel. And the tragedy that is that you see on a small scale in the soil becomes a tragedy of immense scale in the human soul. Because the human soul is so incredibly close to God himself, it has farther to fall. One of the tragedies that takes place after the biting of the forbidden fruit, the image bearer of God will be wrecked in ways that make it impossible for the holy God to walk with him in the garden It'll be impossible for any community of two or more people to have peace and joy for any length of time. And it'll be impossible for the, nat the natural world to flourish under human stewardship. A lot of things become impossible from this point forward. 
Well, friends, you may have guessed this already, but this becomes the, the solution to the mystery of Uncle Jim. A man created in the image of God to be beautiful, to be perfect, to be lovely, comes out of the womb broken before he takes his first breath. It's the lot of all of us. It is the inheritance from the first fall, and there is nothing within him that is innocent. Nothing. The picture that Lisa had of him as a young girl, of a warm and inviting personality, a a person who could do no wrong in her eyes. Was that an accurate picture of Uncle Jim? But likewise, the picture that Lisa had of Uncle Jim on that horrible, horrible day when she went into the house and began uncovering all of these dirty secrets from his life and began to wonder if this guy was capable of anything good. Was that an accurate picture of Uncle Jim's life? Well, not really either. Both of those pictures are incomplete, and what is actually true, as the text kind of helps us to understand, is that Jim and Dave and Jeff and who is the grandfather over here? Randy. (laughs) And the little ones that marched out to go to children and worship and little lambs are beautiful and broken. Beautiful and broken, all at the same time. There's a Christian author uh, from the last century from Russia, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and he wrote this fascinating line. I'm going to roll it out for you and then just explain a little bit about what it means. There is a line, a line dividing good and evil, and it cuts through every human heart. Every human heart, every human being. The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. In other words, this line, let's just, it's a pretend line, of course, but this line that divides good from evil doesn't go around anybody so that any one person is left untouched by evil. It goes through us. And this line doesn't run away from people, avoiding them altogether and leaving them all good. And it doesn't run over all people, leaving them all bad either. This line dividing good from evil runs right through every human heart. Yours, mine, the kids who left, and every child who will be born from this point forward. And so all of us, friends, all of us are these mysterious mixtures of good and evil, bearing the beautiful mark of God's creative genius, and carrying the ugly disease of sin all at the same time, a disease that leads us away from God and into ourselves, into acts and thoughts and words of rebellion against God's ways, and into a state of condemnation from God. My friends, this text here, uh, Genesis 3, helps me to understand things that I see a lot of in my work as a church consultant. Remember that I I said to you that I 
I have a, a wonderful spot to be. I get to see people at their best and people at their worst. This text helps me survive that reality. Because it explains to me on a 30,000 foot level what's going on. It under, helps me understand why many good and decent people see their own motives as pure and noble and the motives of those with whom they disagree as evil and dark. Sin blinds these good and decent people. This text helps me understand why uh, good and decent people have taken hard positions on things like COVID and things like politics and human sexuality as if these complicated issues are all so simple and perfect and it's all black and white. And, and these good and decent people believe everything that confirms their position and automatically discount anything that disagrees with their position. These good and decent people are proud and immovable, and I'll say it this, I'll say this too, they're a little bit lazy. Like, I don't want to have to think through all kinds of complicated stuff. I just rather land that, I'll land on the position that that's evil and that's good. Because then I don't have to think about it. My friends, this text helps me understand why good and decent people are easily offended and have a hard time forgiving. Sin makes us certain of our righteousness and unwilling to question ourselves or be curious about our motives. And, and for every person who wonders why everybody else out there is so hard to get along with, this text, this text solves the mystery and it calls out all the ways that we try to deny sin's impact on us. My friends, this text explains a lot. It explains a lot about Uncle Jim. It explains a lot about the people that I meet and work with in my, in my work as a pastor. It explains a lot about me, gang. And it explains a lot about you as well. This text is also the foundation of a marvelous hope. Let me talk about that for a second too. This text and the words that follow a little bit after this text show us that, that brokenness is not a force that we can't understand and a force about which nothing can be done. This is a problem that can be dealt with. Because it takes place in a world created by God, a world that God loves, and it takes place only because God allowed it to take place. And only God can deal with this stuff that causes these mysteries, this ugly stuff. He actually controls how far sin can go. This world isn't as bad as it could be, in other words, because of God. He sends, he will send, if you're standing in this text, later on in the scriptures we find out about a person that God will send who will do all that is needed to correct all that is wrong. Jesus would, in words we find after our text, crush the serpent's head, code language for 
reverse everything done by Satan. Listen to the Apostle Paul many years later talk about this. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship and daughtership. Because you are his children, God sends the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father, rather than enemy, get away. So writes Paul, you are no longer a slave but God's child. And since you are God's child, God has also made you an heir. Beloved of God, this text is about sin. And it fits into the Scripture's broader message about grace. Boys, your cadet counselors are teaching you all kinds of things about what it is to become a big person, an adult. It's great. But I want you to just get a little sense that this story here in Genesis 3 is maybe one of the most important preparations you can make to become like they are, your cadet counselors, and like me, and like all the other men in the congregation. Might even be more important than reading a compass. <laughs> I, I think it probably is. As good as it is to read a compass and to tie knots, and to learn how to shoot. Getting this into here is so important. I think Lisa and her husband understand that. I think they understand just, well, they understand a lot more about life today than they did before Jim's death last year. Before they thought, through, thought about this mystery and then thought it through. I think they're better people for understanding Genesis 3 and how it applies to Uncle Jim. They're quicker to praise God. They are. They are just quicker to praise God. They are easier on themselves. And they are more gracious with others. Because they see people just like you as incredibly mysterious mixtures of all kinds of beauty and all kinds of darkness and they understand that God never walks away. Would you pray with me? Dear Father God, thank you so very much that you have never walked away from us. You didn't walk away from Adam and Eve. You didn't walk away from your broken creation. You didn't walk away from Israel when Israel rebelled against you so very often. You didn't walk away from David when he sinned with Bathsheba. You didn't walk away from Solomon when he, oh, when he found wisdom to do all kinds of things that went against your ways. You didn't walk away from Jim or Lisa or any of us. And you explained to us the mystery in your word, you explained it, and we are glad because we sense that it leads us to be more authentically human, more praise-filled for you, 
easier on ourselves, more gracious to others. Thank you, God. We pray in Jesus' name.